This is Mike Dangerously, and you're listening to the Bradley's House Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back. Come on in and make yourself at home, as you should when you're a guest in Bradley's house. I'm your co-host, Jared Orr. She is the executive director of the Noel Family Foundation and our lovely host, Ms. Kelly Noel. Kelly, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing very good. Thank you, Jared. How are you? Uh, if I was any better, Kelly, I'd be jealous of myself. Wait, you've I, used uh, that one before. You need more dad jokes. you got to come up with some fresh stuff for us. That's like my go-to because it's true. I'm, like well, I got that's it. Good. I've got it. All. Well, I'm living the dream. I don't know if I'm living my dream, but there's somebody <laughs> out there that would take this shit that I got going on for sure. Um, so I'm living a dream. I don't want to say the dream, but like there's somebody who would totally do this. I like uh, that. <laughs> so super excited for a, another episode of Bradley's House. I'm super excited for today's episode. We get to talk to a lot of different people about a lot of different things. We have awesome musicians who come in and share some amazing music stories. And obviously, being Bradley's house and being the sister of Bradley Noel, music's going to come up. We're going to talk a lot of music. But the true mission of the Noel Family Foundation and Bradley's house is recovery. So whenever we get an opportunity to have somebody come on and share some stories and talk a little bit about that, it's extra exciting for me. Kelly, who's today's guest? I'm super excited today. We have someone who checks all those boxes. This is a no-brainer for a guest with us. He's a good friend of mine that I have recently become acquainted with. Um, He's helping us with Bradley's house. I'm super excited. Uh, We have today with us Steve Hall from Glass House Recovery. Steve, thank you so much for being with us. Man, this is amazing. uh, Jarrett, your professionalism shines through, and I love the joke, so I'm on your side. (laughs) That was great. I, uh, I appreciate that. I keep it professional between the lines. You know, what goes yeah, on off the recording absolutely. is off the recording. But right here, I'm business, man. <laughs> it's business not that I didn't guy. like the joke. I liked it like the first 12 times he used it. I'm just saying he needs <laughs> something fresh. Dude, we just need some fresh back. humor. <laughs> Got your back, Jarrett. Yeah. I'm, 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 doing, I'm doing really good, Kelly. <laughs> All right. Whatever. I'm I'll never going to live that one down. So, I'm fine. You, Steve, tell us a little bit about how it was that you and I became acquainted. Sure, you got it. Um, Yeah, my name's Steve. Uh, My superhero music name is Gray Smith, Gray with an E, and um, I am from Washington, D.C. I I got clean September 1st, 2010, uh, after a long, exciting string of failures and embarrassing incidents with various levels of law enforcement, including having that limited to the federal government. And um, I met someone when I was in the federal justice system who uh, was a therapist that absolutely changed my life. And he told me that when I got my stuff together, I should go to school to become a therapist. And uh, I ended up listening to him. And yeah, um, I did that. 
and I went to school and I got into the field and I continued to stay clean and um yeah life was uh life was a big deal and um then I got burnt out real bad I was working for the same federal justice system that I was an inmate in and uh <clears throat> I uh I had to leave I walked away in 2017 and um I poured everything I had into my music and I, you know, walked away from my job. I dropped out. I was in a PhD program in Philly. I was driving up every weekend and I just, I walked away from all of it and I moved into the shitty warehouse in West Baltimore and I just started making these songs and uh, like releasing these little Instagram clips and stuff like that. And it caught fire in a way that I never anticipated, like the way that the universe immediately stepped up and saluted me for doing that stuff. Uh, it blew my mind. And, um, you know, the next thing I knew, um, it was just like, here we go. Um, my first, my first record called ghost notes, I dropped it in 2019. It crowdfunded like 30 grand. I had never released music in my life. Um, people just started stepping up and throwing like, you know, their, their money or their expertise or their support into the project. I mean, one of the actresses from the new Jurassic Park movie, like saw a clip on Instagram, flew me to Hawaii, like, you know, put me in a helicopter, flew me over Jurassic Park. It was just like, yo, man, it was just one of those things. I just kept getting these signs along the way that I was on the right track, Mm. you know? And when the universe gives me confirmation like that, it it edifies the desire that I had, right? I don't mm-hmm. so like being an addict, right? I don't I can't profess to be in possession of a long track record of making good decisions for myself. Mm. So it's like it helps when I get that <laughs> It helps when I get that encouragement from sure. large, you know, and and so so I kept going with it. Um the thing about it was, you know, I walked away from my job, it was like my income dramatically reduced and I had to choose between uh, an apartment to, you know, I'm a dad of a, a baby girl who, uh, who I named Ramona. Thanks, mm. to, thanks to your brother, Kelly. And, uh, yes. and, um, you know, I was raising her and I had to pick between an apartment or like an office space where I could make noise to make the record. And so, uh, I rented a, a one-room office in Annapolis, Maryland, and uh, we lived in there. And she was like three years old at the time, and I just told her we were camping. And uh, <laughs> she absolutely loved it. We had a pull-out couch, and we slept in there, and we got the damn thing done. Um, awesome. And, yeah, and when that record dropped, man, it was um, it was one of the most important finish lines I've ever crossed. You know, I'm, I'm a great starter. I uh, can't profess to be a a great finisher as well but that album dropped man and um like the whole recovery community that i'm a part of um like they were it was just i could tell that it was about something way larger than i was you know and um you know the next thing i know like my face was up in Times square and like i went up to see it in person which was crazy because i used to like beg for change up there and mm. like seeing my face up on that billboard and um and then the new york times got a hold of me i went over there to you know meet at their op-ed people and talk to them and then you know uh kennedy center you know, they're like, we want you to come out and perform. And it was like, Kennedy Center was the kind of place that I, they wouldn't even let me in to use the bathroom when I was there. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, like, <clears throat> and then I got the chance to open up for the, the Jizza and like the Wu-Tang guys and, and shit like that. And, um, 
you know, it was just the confirmation that I had done something great. But I mean, the cool part was my inbox, man. Like I had people from all over the world just pouring their hearts out to me in rapid fashion. Mm. Uh, I, I got a video from an Aborigine dude in kind of like, like Jeep with no doors driving around the outback, like crying, listening to one of my songs. Like, Whoa. I, like I, I didn't even know they had the internet out there. You know what I mean? And it was just, yeah. just, uh, seeing that impact, you know, it's like, I don't know, as a musician, we just, uh, it's like, I always picture it like a little boat, you know, we make a little sailboat and we put it in the ocean and it just goes where it goes. It's cool seeing like the people that it affects and, you know, how it's able to make that impact. And, you know, and then I kept going. So then it was like, okay, now what? Somebody stepped up. They were like, bro, like, um, you know, the Times Square thing really, really made an impact. And look, I'll be honest, like, I got self-esteem issues and shit. I'm standing in Times Square, like, looking up at the picture, like, like, ah, uh, I hope that's the right picture, like, insecure about the way I look. Because it's like mm-hmm. the biggest jumbo chart in the world. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm just like, yeah. look, like, so it was like kind of weird for me, but what really made Times Square count was just seeing how much it meant to everybody else. Yeah. Like, I, I was their guy. You know what I mean? And that was the energy that was there. They were like, that's our dude. He's ours. And, um, you know, with the 12 step fellowship stuff, like, you know, like I can't disclose which one I'm a member of. Um, and in any kind of press radio and film, the best sure. stuff. But I wish I could have that day. I wish I could. Oh, have. yeah. These are the people that gave me the opportunity to be this. And, and like people started asking me for money and shit. Listen, when I was waiting for my face to come up on that billboard, like my car got declined at Chipotle. In <laughs> Times Square. You know, like people, I don't know what it is. Like people, <laughs> they see your face in Times Square. They're like, oh, he's rich. You've like, made it. Yeah. Oh, congratulations, bro. Uh, sorry to ask. I wouldn't ask if I wasn't desperate. I'm like, yo, I, my rent is 600 bucks a month and that's hard to make sometimes, you know? Oh. So. That was the first, um, the first testament to like just walking away from everything and focusing on my craft. And, uh, somebody that had a lot to do with it is a, is a man by the name of Stephen Pressfield. He wrote a book called The War of Art, not to be confused with The Art of War, but The War of Art is, uh, it's, uh, an incredible piece of work that really, uh, help me dig down and identify the things that stand in between me and my creations. And, uh, it was, you know, he's an ex-Marine. He, uh, he writes incredible fiction works as well. He wrote, uh, that movie, The Legend of Bagger Vance. Like he wrote that script. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, but yeah, I'll hook you up with the book afterwards. I send it to everybody I know, um, all the time. And he, you know, it just really kind of, it took, procrastination and all the things that artists face that stand in the way of them completing. And, um, they kind of identify it like the disease of addiction. It's like, no, this, and you know, the, the concept that he uses is, uh, resistance with the mm-hmm. capital R and he talks about the things that keep us, um, dormant. And that book, uh, activated everything. I actually, you know, the day, the day I left my job and dropped out of school and, and all that was the day I read that book. And, uh, wow! Yeah, that was a huge catalyst for me, and we've since become friends, man. It's it's uh it's really cool to nice. And, yeah, you know, and um, so I kept going with that, you know. Um, stepped up, somebody was like, "Yo, uh, you can't live in this studio." You know, he came to check me out. He's like, "You got a kid, bro? You don't even have a, a shower, or a bathtub here." I mean, I don't know if this is cool to say on like a podcast or whatever. But I was like bathing my kid in like halfway houses. Like my buddy stayed in one. I would go over there and give her a bath, and like I don't know, it's still shameful because I felt like. Like it made me like a failure as a father or some shit, you know, but, um, pretty sure it didn't. Yeah. Um, I mean, she didn't care, but right. 
um, I don't know. It just, I don't know. When I t- when I talk about that, it still makes me feel kind of fucked up, you know. But anyway, uh, somebody stepped up and they're like, "Yo, I own a house in Baltimore City. Uh, here's the keys." And so, yeah, that was my wow. guy, my guy Mike Schiff. He let me, you know, move in the place, and I set up a studio in here, and I got back to work. You know, I, I'm, I'm in here right now. I've been here ever since, and uh, you know, um, uh, yeah, th- you know, he was just one more person that just stepped up and was like, "Man, what you're doing is uh, it deserves support." So, yeah, we're doing that, and then um, we, you know, we kept moving forward, and uh, I was playing gigs. I was getting this next album ready to go, and you know, dropping little pieces here and there and everything was going great. And then I, I got a, you know, a tour lined up for 2020 and, um, I was ready to go on the road, you know, I was, I was assembling the band. I make, I make all my stuff myself, like all the instruments and production and vocals, I do it all. And so going on the road means I got to get a team together. And right. I was in the process of doing that. Um, my buddy Tanner and, uh, this guy Ian, um, we were going to, you know, bring that on the road and this guy Eric as well. And, uh, and then, I got this email about South by Southwest. This is one of the things we we're going to play. And they were talking about um, this weird flu going around. We got to keep an eye on it. And I didn't think nothing of it. I'm like, yeah, okay. What the, what the hell does that have to do with anything? And uh, right. then Pepsi dropped out of South by Southwest. And then uh, everyone else followed suit. And then I just, I got online and started looking at, what the hell was taking place and that turned out to be COVID and um, uh, the entire tour got canceled and um, crushed me spiritually uh, you know yeah. after going through that entire hike that I just talked about you know um, and all you know all those and it was replete with all these blessings and universal confirmations that I was on the right track and it, it seemed uh, it seemed like one big cosmic prank that mm that hard to get to the gate and just have them say like actually we're closing yeah. everything so yeah it uh it troubled me a lot and um uh i had a dark patch the second half of uh 2020 was the darkest patch of my life uh, since i've been clean at least and um yeah uh and then i got pissed off that people that i love still decide to use heroin all the time and so I wrote a song called All My Friends Are On Heroin. And that's, I sent that to you, Kelly. Mm-hmm, that's powerful. Yeah. That video. Yeah. People need to check out that video for sure. Yeah, I'll drop that one soon here. And um, um, that song, I released it on Facebook. Like, I didn't release it on any of the things. I just wanted at least, like, a sign of life. Like, yo, I didn't die. Like, I'm here and I'm still making music. And, and it made, again, it just it made a hell of an impact and it led to this person like looking me up and like reading the interviews and the articles and in so here's the thing the Times Square thing above it it says former therapist harnesses hip hop to take on mental illness mm. and that's cool but my thing was all the all the interviews they were doing that I just want to talk about the therapy shit and I was like I'm not here for that man like that ain't that's like you know what I mean like let's not talk about that um but that was like the buzzworthy content, you know, and uh, I mean, I had like American psychiatric journals and shit publishing that, that article. I mean, so anyway, so this person found those interviews and in the interviews, they asked me, are you ever going to b- go back to being a therapist? And I'm just like, hell no, I'm never going back. So this person like found those interviews and blew up every piece of social media I have with the same message at the same time. Uh, I need to meet you immediately. It's important. And, 
so yeah, I was like, okay. And I met this person and, um, they wanted to meet me in person because they wanted me to be the director of their facility. Wow. They knew that if they just asked me in a message, like I just say no the way that I had in those interviews. And, you know, they made me, uh, uh, an offer. Uh, and I said, okay. And hire my sister as well. Um, and I took the job and, um, I lasted a month before I blew the whistle on the facility and reported them to the federal government for massive fraud. Um, wow. Neglect. Um, and it was the most deplorable conditions I had ever seen, uh, exist in America under the auspices of helping people. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. And, you know, this facility is called Omni House and I absolutely will name them every chance I get. I'm <laughs> just saying you're calling them out. Yeah, absolutely. They were the most pitiful organization I'd ever seen. I had two patients die while I was there. <gasps> and, and these aren't, these aren't substance use disorder. These are critically mentally ill, axis one organic brain disorders, schizophrenia. Oh. Uh, they're leaving them in the, in their, you know, apartments without checking on them. Oh uh, gosh. They're just in there dying in their own waste and uh, mm. I couldn't, couldn't be a part of it. So, um, yeah, I reported them to the feds and, uh, they need to be shut down as soon as possible. My report did lead to their CEO getting, uh, dethroned. So, um, I'm, wow. I'm glad that that took place, but yeah, I'm not shy about that one at all. They, uh, they're, uh, they're horrible. And that's they, awful. I uncovered a syndicate of the employees stealing the food stamp cards from the mentally retarded patients and going shopping with them. <sighs> Just, yeah, like that level of, are you wow. And they're doing it with suck. Them, you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. Like, Let's get them out of there. But, um, wow. So anyway, my sister, they escorted her off the property when they found out what I did. And uh, she was upset. So I went to comfort her. And uh, my mom was there. My mom said, if these idiots can run a facility, then you should open your own. And it was just my mom being my mom. You know, she she's hard scrabble when she needs to be. And uh, I don't think she meant much by it, but... It was just one of those times in life where your heart's in the right position to hear something. And, right. And it stuck with me, man. And uh, so one thing led to another. God put more people in my life. Um, my my uh, partner uh, at this facility called Glasshouse that we opened, and um, her name is Sarah. And, uh, you know, we She's opened great. Our own, yeah, and we opened our own place. You know, and we've been open for three weeks. We're, uh, it's called Glasshouse. It's in Old Ellicott City, Maryland. We're at glasshouserecovery.com. And we are a treatment facility for artists and creatives. And, um, um, you know, we don't turn anybody away. I'm, I'm a firm believer that anybody can be a creator. But, you know, that's our flavor. I'm a musician and my partner Sarah is an artist. And, uh, my little sister that they escorted out of the building is our chief operations officer, too. So. Fantastic. Uh, we got that. We got that. Um, yeah, we've been open for three weeks now and, um, you know, fully licensed, fully accredited by the big joint commission. And, um, and I reached out to that therapist that I told you about that was my therapist when I was in the feds. And, uh, I, I asked him to come on board and he, uh, he left his position that he'd been in since I met him and he came on board. So he works with us now too. And, um, wow. <clears throat> we have an amazing team. Uh, to say the least, and I'm glad to be a part of it. And, um, you know, so that's, uh, yeah, that's kind of olive green is my favorite color. I, uh, I eat way too much cereal. I got a, I got a problem with that. 
Yeah. Uh, Nobody's favorite color is olive green. Yeah, that's my favorite color. And uh, yeah, I got a dog named Taco. It's a Jack Russell from hell. And, it's fabulous. Yep. And I spend way too much money on music equipment that I don't even take out of the box. That's uh, that's that's pretty much me. So. Okay, so you reached out to me on Facebook mm-hmm. and told me about glasshouse recovery and when i checked out your website i felt such a kinship because it's so in line with what we're wanting to do with bradley's house and i get so excited whenever i find other organizations that are doing something similar like um recovery unplugged which Mm -hmm. is in texas and a few other states same kind of thing geared towards you know creative types and um not that not that it needs to be exclusive to that but but there is something about creative types that that needs um, maybe some some different tweaking in in recovery. I agree. So I think the uh, the mental health diagnosis that you'll see the most um, amongst you know that demographic is going to be the bipolarities, and mm-hmm. um, I think what that really is is just a depth of, of feeling. And I think right. artists, artists um, we feel things deeper than uh than most and a lot of times that becomes unbearable and so drugs make their way into the picture and it's just you know here's the thing i don't believe in drug problems um i've i've used a lot of them to say the least um but they were never my problem you know uh, i've never had a drug problem in my life drugs are a solution they're just a very shitty one you mentioned that the first time we talked and at first I was like, what do you mean drugs aren't a problem? And, yeah. so, and that I haven't forgotten that because it's a really interesting twist, a good perspective on it, that, that well, it is the solution. Take the drugs away. Then what, what am I okay now? Are you kidding me? When the, when the, when the drugs were gone, I, it became that much more obvious what my problems really were. Yeah. I had, I had an inability to occupy my own skin. Yes. I didn't know how to sit still in a room without thinking all these kind of weird things about my inclusion and society and, you know, rejection and, and all these things. And my head would just swim with all these concepts. And, um, it just wasn't a thing that I, I really understood very much. But when I used drugs, it didn't hurt as bad for a little while. That's all. Right. I and so right. Like, okay. Give me more of that until, until the shit wears off, but that's elementary, you know, for, for treatment to be in a position where we still think that the, like, I don't have some kind of gene in my DNA that makes me a junkie. That's not a thing. I mean, you know, they say addiction is a hereditary, you know, disease and I'll agree with it to the, to the point where if I'm raised in a household that doesn't have effective emotional tools to deal with my emotions, right. I'm not going to learn them either. So I inherit that lack of tool. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I personally don't, subscribe my i mean sure like i've i've done my time in the in the trenches with the the neuroscience and you know the reward pathways and all that stuff gets altered and sure and then we develop physical dependence i, I won't refute any of that but there's not much to do when you blame the drugs you put them down and then what you know yeah so, and to be fair that's not just the purview of artistic and creative people i mean there are a lot of people that are that deal with those same issues but i do think that um that it is very prevalent in the artistic community and so that 
needs to be addressed in recovery. The statements that I just made about like the impetus of addiction and all that, that's, that's universal. Like that applies to everybody. It's just with the, you know, the creative types, it's, um, you know, if, if addiction is a result of, you know, intense emotions, you're going to see, you know, that kind of skew that way. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I, I can't, I think there's some, you know, clinical approaches that I would, I'd reach for a little quicker with creative types, but the last thing I want to do is make it seem like, um, you know, there's some kind of, or we are, we're some kind of special brand of it. It's just, I, I know that identification helps in the recovery process and, um, yeah, like our facility, you know, it, it just looks awesome. It's like an industrial loft, you know, it's not like <laughs> clinical hospital space and we got fucked up art hanging up everywhere there's we have a sign outside our bathroom that says please don't do coke in our bathroom like we're, <laughs> you know what i mean we're we're cut we're cut pretty pretty clean you know like when it comes to the on it like the, the our vibe you know and, and we like to keep it that way i mean you got banksy on the walls and just nice that kind of, you know that kind of stuff man and um, and did you envision what you wanted it to look like before it actually happened i did and um you know, Sarah, she had me make a vision board. Um, and yeah, I, I, so at first I wanted to open up a treatment facility in, uh, an abandoned Jiffy loop, like, <laughs> uh, an old, like, you know, I just wanted it. to yeah. it. I wanted it to have like a mechanics vibe or whatever. And then I learned about this pesky agency called the joint commission. And yeah. Like, uh, they were never going to give, you know, never going to approve like a, a medical facility in some place like that. So, uh, but yeah, I, I put this vision board together and yeah, it was just like pictures of like colors and the vibe and of course a lot of olive green and, uh, you know, and, and I, I've just always liked that kind of, you know, architecture and the lofty stuff and the exposed yeah. beams and the wood and all that other stuff. And one afternoon I just got on the internet and think about glass house, the place that we ended up, like they didn't have pictures of the interior of the building. So I had no idea. I called, uh, Waverly, who's the real estate company that is awesome. And they were able to, um, you know, the guy, Don was just like, yeah, just come look in the window. You'll, you can tell exactly what it, and I saw it and it was just like, here we go. And you know, it, uh, it took a lot to, to make it happen. And you know, we're in there now. And, um, look, the coolest part about, the my contribution to Glasshouse is that I'm writing the curriculum for it, you know, and, and the, the mm. fact that I get to draft the program for the groups, and I, I get to, you know, because I'm just I'm, we're delving into amazing stuff in there, you know, and, and keeping it evidence based as well. Like I'm not just going in there and talking about weird shit that has no basis in, you know, it's like taking all the stuff that you know I've learned as a clinician, and then you know Sam as well, and and kind of boiling that down, but then throwing it into a group like. One of the groups I, I just did uh, last week is called Zombie Film in Reverse, and <laughs> you know, and when I wrote when I wrote that piece, it's just it talks about how like you know people at the end of the road with addiction, like what do you got in common with a zombie? There's like these shells of humans that are just ambling around the world aimlessly, scratching, itching, just looking for that one thing, and and then you know, and then you play that zombie movie in reverse, and, and the recovery process is like you see them come back to life, and <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot there to deal with. I mean, feelings don't like take a number and come, you know, orderly fashion back into your world. They all come back at the same time, and that can be incredibly overwhelming. So right. Know, and just and getting into that and just talking about how to deal with that stuff and then I mean the guilt, the shame, you know, and we talked about that before, right? Guilt right. 
Guilt is I made a mistake. Shame is I am one. And making the distinction between those two things and understanding like how to harness that. But yeah, if you've lived, lived, you know, through any measure of active addiction, like you've hurt somebody. And when the drugs wear off, a lot of times it's really hard to, to sit and, and, yeah. Things, man. So, you know, we get to the you, point. Of- you mentioned that when we first talked and, and I was taking notes because we were talking about, you know, stuff for the foundation, but in, in the course of you giving some background and stuff, you mentioned that guilt is that you made a mistake and shame is that you are one. You also said guilt is a motivator and shame keeps you stuck. I wrote that down too, because I thought that was so powerful. When you think of that distinction between guilt and shame, there really is a difference and, and they, it really does impact how you progress from there. Um, so where did the name glass house come from? You know, I have no idea. I I just came up. I came up with a million. You know, I was. I came up with it as a name for a studio that I opened. Ah, okay. Like, uh, years ago, and th- I'm supposed to have. I gotta. I gotta come up with a way cool, way cooler story than what it is. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, you do. Because <laughs> this story, like, I, I it was a name that I tried to open a studio with, and it didn't work. Like, I just, I don't know. I forgot what I did. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Don't. Right. I'll come up with something. I'll come up with something more impressive. No, but you know, it's. Uh, Does it have nothing to do with throwing stones? Is that like not like glass house throw stones? I mean, that was. There. That was kind of what I was getting. Glass house, I think, is a really good way to tell people that we're we're in recovery without saying it. You know, but after this podcast gets released, I guess the secret's out. But yes. Um, <laughs> But, you know, here's the thing is, like, I mean, I don't really struggle with that. Like, do I look like a junkie or not, damn it? So I'm from I'm from D.C., right? D.C. is different than Baltimore. Baltimore, you know, as you know, thanks to The Wire, uh, we got a little bit are of Are you a- really from D.C. or are you from a D.C. suburb? Because, like, my parents tell me that I was born in D.C., but I find out that we lived in, like, fucking Annandale, Virginia or something. Yeah, no, no, no. So I'm from a place called Greenbelt which is uh, Uh 15 minutes. So, so that's where I grew up. And then I moved to the city. uh, And yeah, that's where it all went down for sure. So bonafide uh, in there. And so here's the thing. DC does not have poor white people. The white people in DC are affluent, right? In Baltimore, everybody's poor, all the colors. I say that to say that in Baltimore, it's not strange to see a white person on an open air drug strip. In D.C., however, listen, this I was destitute. I'm talking about my hair down to my shoulders just because I, I just happened to not care about the way that I looked for that many days in a row that it got long. And, like, track marks and the cuticles on my finger. Like, I was done. And even still, in D.C., I would walk out on the drug strip and they'd be like, shut it down. The boys are here. And I'm just like, yo, are you kidding me, bro? Like, I... Like, I remember the pain of feeling like there's only one group of people that I am a member of now, and that is the dregs of society, and they think that I'm the cops. And I just mm. remember, like, feeling that damn rejection uh, at that level. And that, yeah, Fucking wow. narc. Yeah, fuck it. and I'm just <laughs> like, yo, if I'm a cop, I'm the best undercover cop of all time. Like, mm. bro, I... You know, because I was out there, and I just remember feeling that rejection. I had, I never used drugs in Baltimore. Like I really didn't know much about it. But yeah, when did your drug use start? Um, let's see. 
uh, you know, uh, 11, I think, you know, different things here and there, mm -hmm. here and there, here and there. And then, um, uh, so I was, I was casted on that show, uh, The Wire, and I played a junkie on TV in, in that show without, before I had ever touched an opiate. Mm -hmm. and so I would hang out with like the extras and stuff. So in Baltimore, the, the agreement with the city was they would shut down the streets for the shots, like that they all needed. So they'd get like an empty street, no problem. In, in exchange for, uh, hiring the homeless population of the city for the day from the shelter and paying them a daily wage. And those were all the extras in the show. And so I was just hanging out with these guys all the time. And, um, like me getting cast on that show was a fluke. I got casted to be a new character in season six and they didn't even, uh, make a season six. Like they canceled the show. So that, hurt. yeah, but I'm still in a couple episodes. I'll, I'll, I'll show you. If, uh, nice. I still haven't watched it. My feelings are still hurt like 15 years later. <laughs> Holding the grudge. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, well, because I thought I had arrived, damn it. And uh, <laughs> so, so anyway, I took that hard and then um, ended up uh, in in Nashville. And I went down to Nashville, and uh, that's when I decided to escalate uh, my journey. Mm. And, and this is 07, 08, somewhere in that. And so, yeah, for the last two or three years, it was... Uh, Real hardcore drug use. Um, I never sniffed drugs ever. That wasn't my thing. I I, I went right to the right to the injecting. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. And um and I just was on a mission for self destruction and it was tough because I didn't know the slang for the drugs I wanted in the Nashville hood. So they kept giving me crack and I was like, what's the <laughs> like? Cause I didn't want to like get out of the car. I'm like, what do you call heroin in the city? Oh my gosh. I, you know, like I couldn't, I didn't do this. So I just kept saying like all these different words and every single time, no matter what, they would just come back with crack and I hated crack, but I still smoked it anyway. Damn it, Kelly. Uh, <laughs> it was better than staying in my own feelings. Um, oh, yeah, gosh. I, every time I use cocaine, they were coming. I don't know who mm. the hell they are, but they were always on the way. I still haven't figured out who they are, but ever since I got clean, I figured out that they were coming for everybody that, that smoked. Mm. Yeah. Hopefully we figure out who they were, but, uh, yeah. And it just, it led to, um, you know, it led to a lot of arrests and, uh, one of them, uh, being of the federal variety. And that's when things got real serious. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so I had a bunch of charges, um, and they put me on pretrial supervision. Um, and that's when I got to meet, the you know the guy I talked about Sam who's my therapist assigned to me by the federal government and um you know that trial went on for a long time and um one of those you know at the end of it I was I was on methadone uh, and they were paying yeah. they were paying for it so they were like enough is enough bro like you know, you, you're going to prison, man. It's time to, it's time to sentence you. Cause I kept giving them the runaround and faking, you know, all types of shit. And so I said, one last favor, please. Can you at least put me in a detox to get this shit out of my blood before you put me in a federal, you know, FCI? Uh, mm. And so they acquiesced and they gave me seven days in a, in a detox to come off that stuff, which with methadone, it takes a lot longer, but yeah. Needless to say, I was feeling raw. While I was in there, 
some people from a 12 step fellowship came in with a meeting and, um, it spoke to me for sure. And it wasn't because they talked about drugs. This guy came in and, uh, he since passed. Um, but he said he remembered being jealous of his uncle when he was a kid because his uncle was a you know, derelict and his, he would always get arrested. And he remembers being at the dinner table multiple times and Uncle Shithead would get arrested again and, the, and would call from jail. And he said he got jealous because the whole family would get up from the table and all pile in the van and go bail out Uncle Shithead again. And he wow. said he remembered being jealous of the attention. And that was so peculiar to me at the time. But that is what plugged me in. You know, uh, and he, yeah, he relapsed and he died. Um, mm. But, like, that always stuck with me. His name was Barney. And um, that always stuck with me because, like, I can relate to that. Yeah. I, You know, pulling on a pant leg, pay attention to me. Mm-hmm. Like, that's really where my wounds lived, you know? And, yeah. Um, so that plugged me in. So, you know, they gave me my colorful papers and, uh, you know, when I got out and, um, they started going to those meetings in the community while I was waiting for court. And then like, just something started happening inside of me. And, um, you know, I was raw as hell cause the methadone's like leaking out of my bones. And, um, mm. I kept going to these meetings and, um, so here comes court and, I knew when I went to court, I was going to prison for the rest of my life. It was like 81 years I was facing. And, uh, wow. So, yeah, it was bad stuff. And um, so, whatever. So, I loved these meetings, right? And then court came, and I went to the hospital and the night before court, and I made up some bullshit. Like, my fucking liver has a brain tumor or some weird <laughs> disease, and um, made him check me in. Right, which was easy because I've been manipulating hospitals that whole time for for drugs. I didn't want drugs; I just wanted I wanted to admit me, right. uh, so I didn't have to go to court. And so I did, and I had the golden ticket. You know, the, uh, my pretrial supervision officer, like, where the hell were you? I'm like, Yo, I'm in the hospital. Do you want the discharge papers? You know, like you know, like I beat you. You can't mm-hmm. force me to come to court. I'm in the hospital. So, um, so yeah, that worked swimmingly. And then, uh, three or four weeks later. It was finally time to go to court. And I had been going to those meetings every single day. And the morning of court, I woke up, didn't feel so well, went to the hospital, checked myself back in. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I did it again because it worked so well the last time, right? So I, uh, you know, and then like, come on, man. So whatever. So I, they're like, don't do that again. Your last shot. So I kept, I kept going uh, to the meetings, going to the meetings, and then like, I had like, I don't know, 59 days clean or something. And I raised my hand in the meeting and I was like, look, I'm going to court tomorrow. I'm going to prison for the rest of my life. And I don't even care. Like I've completely surrendered to this shit. Like I'm going to bring our book in there and, uh, I'll, you know, I'll start a meeting in there. And, you know, cause I was free, Kelly, like for real. Like I, wow. my spirit was free. Like I, I wasn't hooked on that shit anymore. You know, I wasn't constantly checking the clock, wondering when I had to rob somebody. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. was, yeah. You know, and I was I was reveling in the fact that I I was no longer dependent on those things, and I surrendered to my fate, man. So, and, you know, and I thanked them, and you know, I left the meeting after it was done, and this big Hell's Angels dude comes up to me outside the meeting, and he's like, "What time is court?" And uh, it was weird because I didn't know him, you know, and 
um, I was uncomfortable and uh, whatever, but I ended up telling them, you know, and because I didn't have a ride, you know, and mm-hmm. I didn't want to drive my grandma's car to the courthouse and just leave it in the parking lot. Right. There, you know, so uh, <clears throat> he picked me up. And this guy's covered the covered head to toe in tattoos, like a biker for sure, no mistake about it. And uh, we walk into this opulent federal courthouse, and um, you know, we walk into the courtroom, and the prosecutor uh, walks right. To, and it's always weird to me because court and church are like the same exact layout. You know what I mean? <laughs> the aisle, and then you got the pews. The pews, yeah. God is up front, elevated. <laughs> On the the bench, the I never thought of that, but yeah. yeah, like all right, this is you know. Uh, so anyway, I walk in, and the prosecutor comes. She doesn't even stop walking. She scans me as she's moving with her eyes up and down, and she grabs the Hell's Angel and takes him in a conference room and shuts the damn door and just leaves me standing in the middle of the aisle like I got stood up on my wedding day. And I'm just like, holy shit! What? And so I'm like, yo, the federal government planted an agent inside of that 12-step fellowship to ah. escort me to court to make sure oh. I didn't again. And so I'm just like, yo, that's what? damn gangster. Like, what? I, I bet they don't do that for many people. I'm proud of myself. <laughs> so I'm standing there, you know, just waiting for them to come out. And the prosecutor and the Hells Angel guy comes out and she walks to the front of the courtroom, calls my case immediately and dismisses every single charge against me right on the spot. Whoa. And, yeah, I get chilled when I think about it, man. Whoa. So, and so the Hells Angels dude just grabs me and he's like, let's go. It's <laughs> like, you got it, bro. I ain't yeah. going home. You know what I mean? Like, I had, like, said my goodbyes and given my shit away. You know what I mean? Like, it was, it was real. And we're walking out of there. I'm like, yo, what the fuck just happened? He's just like, I guess you're having a lucky day. And I was like, yo, what? You know, like, I'm not going to talk about the exact charges, man, but, like, they're, uh, as egregious as it gets, and yeah. you know they 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 were not things that I'm proud of, you know. Um, but mm-hmm. so I said, "What the fuck happened in that conference room?" And he said, um, "The lady walked in and she said, are you from um, Blank Anonymous?' I, I'm not going to identify the fellowship; it's against the rules. But um, and and he said, "Yes, ma'am." And she said, "I knew it. I knew you." <laughs> Because the moment I saw him, I knew you guys had finally gotten a hold of his ass. Like, we've been trying to get him to you this whole time. This dude's brilliant. He needed help, and he just won't get out of his own damn way, and he keeps lying. And look, I was, listen, they kept trying to piss test me. I was doing all kinds of weird shit, like rigging up these devices with tubes with somebody else's pee in it. Try, like, as crazy as it gets, man. And so then they, they brought out this thing called a sweat patch, and they would, they would adhere the, the patch to my arm, uh, and like take it off and put it in the laboratory every, you know, like it was that kind of back and forth bullshit, man. And, um, you know, she was like, I knew you were from that fellowship. My son was a member of that fellowship, and he celebrated three years clean. And we found him on the um. floor. we found him on the floor in the bathroom the next morning. <gasps> and, and oh so, no! Yeah, and she's like, "I'm gonna give him a shot." Um, and uh, oh, yeah, wow. I've, been clean, I've been clean since that day, man. And that guy's been my sponsor since that day too. He didn't work for the fucking feds. He was just a chunky like me. Um, and yeah, this, that's, that's like, crazy. So, okay, so my shout out to my man James. He's been there since day one. 
just getting started. That's outstanding. Okay, so... Almost 12 years ago now. All right, so you said 2020 was such a dark time. What kept you from relapsing? (sighs) Drugs have just never... They haven't become attractive, not once. Even in my... You know, I, I struggle a lot more with the, you know the uh unaliving myself than i do with the uh the drug use part like i know they're not the answer uh i don't want to feel what's on the other side of of letting you know letting people down from relapsing i don't mm-hmm. i'm like I don't, i'm not willing to um i sponsor too many guys and um you know i'm not willing to to uh make sense out of that one to, or, or attempt to um, yeah and, and that hasn't happened you know uh but i struggle uh psychiatrically with with that stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how important, obviously you've kind of already answered this, but I would like you to elaborate. How important has the 12 step program been for you and your sobriety and keeping you alive? Mm -hmm. Oh, the, 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 uh, the one I'm a member of, we, we use the word recovery and, um, we, uh, I just gave it away to everybody that's, that's listening, which is cool. I feel good about it. And, uh, so, Here's the thing. 12-step fellowships, you know, they have multiple elements. They have, like, the fellowship side of it, which is the people and, and going to the meetings. And then you have, like, the service stuff. And thank God, I mean, it was it was service, you know, hospitals and institutions that brought a meeting into that place. And I heard the message and, you know, all that. Um, but, like, what it really comes down to is the steps themselves. And the reason why I'm a member of the fellowship that I'm a member of is because of the depth of the literature that they have. They treat each step like a college course. And it's just, you know, volumes and volumes of books and books that really take you all the way down to the bottom and, you know, and rip the root up. And, um, you know, the 12 steps of that fellowship are, uh, they gave me the ability to experience a side of myself that I never knew uh, I deserved. And, you know, they that's the point of all of it. And uh, I've struggled with every element of the program except that one. I've, I've never doubted whether they work or not. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and that's really what it comes down to. Um, you know, are you willing to do the work? Are you willing to be uncomfortable enough? The goal of recovery is to build a spirit that you no longer want to escape from. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, and, and the steps there are, are, are the, the path out of there, you know, and, and learning how to apply the principles contained in them into your daily life. And that's what it really comes down to. And, you know, and when you talk about processed addictions like sex and food and gambling, and like what does that have to do with drugs? Check it out. If you do those things long enough, you're going to reduce yourself down to a point where the only thing that makes sense is putting a gun in your mouth or getting high again. They will whittle you down and you'll reach for that thing to change it. And, you know, that's why all those things just, they all come in, in the same package. You know, I don't like how I feel. How do I change it as opposed to dealing with it? And I mean, here's the thing. Like a lot of times, you know, we don't feel like we either deserve to feel better or we don't feel like we have what it takes to get through it. And, and in 2020, you know, it just felt like somebody, like an insurance adjuster was dispatched from the universe. And it, it you know, they took a look at my life and said, we can't fix this. It's gone too far. And, um, yeah, as much as I like to think of myself as the lifelong brooding emo artist, like, um, that was the first time I really understood what, you know, suicide was all about. Mm. I didn't feel sad. That wasn't it. I, I didn't, I, I didn't feel anything at all. 
it felt yeah. like it felt like laundry that I hadn't done for way too long, and I finally had to just do the laundry. That's exactly what it felt like. Like, uh, let's get it over with. That's what it felt like, and I didn't. Damn it, I didn't do that for reasons I know of and reasons I don't. Um, yeah. You know, um, I'm really glad I didn't, and it's scary even talking about it. Uh, there's nothing cool about it, that's for sure. Right. Yeah, it's scary stuff. Well, how important is the giving back element for you? Well, see, and it's paradoxical. Um, you know, giving back's great, but it's like, you know, you know, my sponsor had me, uh, in my ninth step, you know, so a lot of times, you know, the ninth step is the amends one. And, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times, you know, the people that we hurt aren't alive anymore by the time we get clean. And, uh, you know, my sponsor had me do a lot of indirect amends. And, and one of those things was, uh, I'll, I'll share, I feel like I shit on it when I share about it, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, um, he had me coach the Special Olympics, uh, like softball. Wow. Uh huh. Yo, listen, uh, I don't belong on, on, you know, one of those shows where they have to wheel you out of the house with a forklift because you're that obese. But yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not an athlete. Uh, I'll say that. <laughs> I okay. Know, I didn't know shit about sports and any of that stuff. And, and he was like, I don't care. I just go do it, you know. So I ended up coaching softball at the Special Olympics Summer Games in Towson. And, um, I wept a lot that day. I still, I still get choked up thinking about it because I can't. Um, you know, these, wow, I, I can't tell you what happened. You know what I mean? Like, listen, it was the, that moment I had in the parking lot, like when I raised my keys up right before I got back in my car to leave. That's when I understood what it was all about. Um, you know, cause when you feel like a virus your whole life and, and you're a radioactive mistake that just wreaks havoc on anybody that's stupid enough to give a shit about you. Like, once you're absolved and you're let back into such a vulnerable, precious environment with the coolest, most pure people in the world, uh, and to have not only been welcomed there, but have been celebrated. Because those guys didn't give a shit if they struck mm. out. They didn't care about any of it. You know, most of them, they would swing and they'd miss every time. And every time they missed four times in a row, that's a ball and everyone cheered. And then they ran and took the damn base. Some of them would run straight to second plate across the pitcher's mouth. They didn't give a shit. It was, it was absolute, pure, unadulterated happiness and joy. And the fact, and some of them were fucking huge. And they would just pick me up and slam me around the dugout, you know. (laughs) fucking scrape me all up and it was beautiful it was uncomfortable it was new and it was the farthest i had ever been away from the sickness that i you know i i had lived for so long uh it wasn't new for me i punched a guy when i was in the first week of the seventh grade and they locked me up and i never came home i'd never never stepped foot in a public high school i spent my entire adolescence in one facility or another i was abused there heavily um You know, physically, sexually, otherwise, and uh, I'm so sorry. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've dealt with that. I don't mind. You know, it doesn't really. Yeah. Me, but I mean, yeah. Uh, please believe, you happen to put me in a director position of a of a facility, and I find out that you're abusing the patients. Like, it's not gonna, it's not gonna last long. And it's personal. Yeah. You know, and and so that's that's those chickens came home to roost that day. It was like I I 
this isn't theoretical. I know what it's like to be in a facility where the people are just housing you while they milk you for your resources. And they don't give mm-hmm. a shit about you. And that's why I was so adamant about getting that place shut down. So Yeah. Well, you were put there for a reason, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, was in a, I was in a marriage like that once where... Oh, housing me and just milking me for resources so i can i can understand that really milking you or like financially (laughs) no that's the problem no the literal milking not so much but the milking of everything else yes so steve what's what's on the horizon for you now obviously glass house just getting started um you have some other plans for other facilities yeah, we uh, you know, we want to expand. Um, and see, you know, I, so what we're doing right now is currently we uh, we have IOP and OP. It's currently virtual, which isn't my my preference, but we got to be responsible, right? You know, um, yeah, because um, uh, there's you know, COVID's kind of popping off right now. It's it's on the way down already, but you know, we want to be responsible. We don't want, want people getting sick under our roof, especially because uh, mm. a lot of, a lot of the people there they live in like recovery houses, so it's like they go home, they infect these guys and, you know, so, um, you know, we're, we're playing it safe, but the next step is to, uh, get a piece of property, like a residential property. So we can have, you know, a place for people to stay. Cause that way it opens up our doors to the rest of the country, as opposed to just putting from the local populace. Uh, that way, you know, we can get everybody in, uh, you know, next step for me personally is to draft up a document called the Bradley scholarship, <laughs> show it to you and tell me that you like it and tell me what to change it to so that it fits, you know, um, I, I want, I want you to love it. And yeah, we're going to, we're going to sponsor someone in your brother's name, uh, free of charge. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. He, uh, you know, Brad is my favorite artist of all time. He influenced me, um, to say the least. And I, uh, I've made a ton of money playing his songs to drunk white people in bars. While they, so, uh, <laughs> time to give back. Yeah. Time to give back. But, um, yeah, uh, so, you know, that's it for that. And then I'm about to jump on a plane here and come spend my birthday with you and your family at the uh, fundraiser. Awesome. That's the show on February 3rd at Alex's in Long Beach. So we'll be in there. And, um, you know, I just want to come and meet you in person and just uh, look at all the love that I found and being that uh you know being that energy and it's, uh, I can I consider it one of the coolest fucking things that's ever happened in my life. So um, I want to get a shout out to a guy named Brandon Hardesty. Uh, I love Brandon. We've had him on the show. Oh no shit! So Brandon, <laughs> Brandon is how I found out about you guys. Brandon's always, <gasps> always looked out for me. Um, uh, he was you know one of the people that you know I don't know. Eight, nine of years. course, you're a Maryland guy. I don't know how I didn't put that together sooner. Yeah. So, you know, he used to, him and Joey Harkham too, like they was uh-huh. just let me come on stage in the middle of their set and just like play songs and shit. And yeah, and so um, I kept in touch with him. He's he's not feeling so well right now. Hope, um, you know, hoping he had to sit out a couple of days on his tour with, with the Uglies. But mm. um, yeah, like uh, he was the one that it was because of him coming on the show and then releasing the, the, you know, the record coming out, the compilation record that yeah was put together. That's how I found out. That's what led me to reaching out to you. Oh, so, yeah, so that's how, that's how that happened. So I wanted to, you know, give a shout out to him. With, uh, that's so cool. I didn't realize that that connection there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love I love Bihard. He actually made an official statement um, yesterday on Facebook, and it read, um, "COVID, your mom's a hoe." Your mom's a hoe. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, yeah, you know, there's a lot of talented guys out here, man, and you know, shout out to him. Like he's he's doing the damn thing, and um, I just, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure that you know I kind of tied it all together. Like, so that's what led us here, you know. Mm, yeah. You know, talking about that, and uh, he, you know, he was he was awesome. He when when I made the post about Glass House, he posted it on his page and. Um, nice shit like that yeah he's always showing me huge love man so I, you know. for people who don't know of course Brandon Hardesty is the lead singer of Bumpin' Uglies on the East Coast fabulous band and like I said he has been on our show as well as Howie Spangler from Ballyhoo I'm a huge Ballyhoo fan as well love them talented people you guys got some good good talent out there yeah it's it's here for sure um and yeah Brandon sings his ass off man for sure mm-hmm got some soul in him um, he does the funky white boy plus i like i've always liked maryland and baltimore you know i grew up in philly so they're like you know they're like our little kid brother they're like the guy that you reach over and just kind of rub him on the head and say how you doing kid philly's, you know, Mar- philly's kind of like the adderall addicted stepchild to baltimore i, I <laughs> put that around philly's kind of like the hey hey calm down uh, you're doing too much, little brother. That's that's kind of how I describe it too. I went to school, I went to Lincoln University up in Philly, and uh, yeah, it was fun times, for sure. But uh, yeah, Brandon is uh, uh, he's a big deal to me, man. And, and I, I I don't know. I, I I hope he gets through what he's going. He's gonna be fine. He was cussing. Yeah, he's calling. You're right. He's calling COVID's mom a hoe. He's already fine. Yeah, COVID, your mom's a hoe. <laughs> so. And, uh, and, and like, that's, I, I can appreciate that. Right. So being a huge sublime fan, I, uh, I can't let you, I can't let you off the hook without talking a little bit of music here, because, um, one question that I ask everybody on the show who I know is a big sublime fan is if you ran into a person who was unfamiliar with sublime and they were going to give you an opportunity to play them one sublime song to, to kind of explain it. What song would you play for them? I don't want to push back with the question, but who's the person? You know what I mean? Like, I, I think erroneous, erroneous on all counts. It's a, it's a stranger, a person you have just met, and they said, "Hey, I've never heard of Sublime. Why don't you play me one song, and I'll see if I like them." Uptown Dub. Ooh, we haven't gotten that one before. Hmm. It's summertime, but it also has the ska part and then the breakdown in half and the cut in halftime. And that pocket is so masterful. I can't wait to to uh, shake Mr. Wilson's hand in a couple of weeks for that one. Mm. There, but yeah, that that's showing up town dub, and uh, and it's just the energy. That's the one I punch on, and uh, you know, I, I feel like I feel like that's a good uh, starter starter song and then i mean certainly uh, you know we won't talk about the uh you know us real sublime fans we don't uh we don't shout out the, the radio plugs you know what i mean but we, we stay away from it if i heard it in walmart i'm not gonna talk about it <laughs> so it's that is true right but like obviously you gotta love those songs like they're they're amazing songs but it's just like I always know what kind of sublime fan I'm dealing with, you know, when, what it, some say uptown dub and you're like, Oh, okay. And others are like, uh, what's that? Uh, the, the loving song. I'm just like, fuck out of my car, man. You yeah. can't. 
Like, musical snobbery here, guys. Yeah, well, well, you know. So here's the thing. I want to share this. This was so cool that this happened. So tonight at Glass House, so I'm one of the therapists and Sam's the other. So I do group Monday and Wednesday. He does Tuesday and Thursday. And tonight for his group, he did everybody pick a song. We're listening to it and we're analyzing it. And somebody from the group picked Pool Shark. And he pulled Robin the Hood, like the album cover, as we were looking at it. Yo. And like we rocked that. This is literally... 11 minutes before I jumped on the, the call with you guys. When I was in one of those facilities in shitty-ass Southern Maryland, you get $20 a month from the state, and you have, like, your appointed correctional officer pick out a gift for you. It could be whatever you want, as long as it's not porn. I tried. They wouldn't let me. But the the album that I bought Robin the Hood with my state allowance, it had... Like, yeah, and, like, that was... And, like, yeah, I had to, like, borrow the CD player and go and sit and listen to it and, like, fucking rally Theodore Sakers. And, <laughs> and the psychiatric facility was a nice look, but. Uh, wow. Yeah. Back out. <laughs> I say that shit all the time. Come so, in your room, Rally. Yeah. Hell yeah. But, yeah, I'm, um, I'm, 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 yeah. So throw another question. I love those questions. I feel, I felt good. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I'm I'm the total. I, I could talk Sublime uh, all the time, but you know, for you to throw out Uptown Dub, obviously, I can see your your dedication to the movement, and I just want to thank you for it. here for it all day. Hong Kong, I'm, Hong Kong food kind of has the same little little pocket in there too, man. It was uh, it was cool. Kelly, do I get to ask you questions, or do I have to make my own podcast to to go? Oh my god, this is awesome. <laughs> Ask her questions. This is fucking great. I gotta be any happier right now. Guys, I'm having a really good time. Let's do it. Kelly. Yep. Fire away. Yes, Steve. Right. <laughs> um what are some things about Bradley that you think the rest of the world didn't really know? He blew his nose in the shower. He did, but everybody knows that. I uh, I always share that one. Um what are some things that people don't know? I've done I've been very, um, very privileged and, and humbled to have been asked to do quite a few interviews. And so I feel like I've shared so much of everything. Like we're just, I'm a very private person. So it's been hard for me to learn to do that. But, but I realize how much, um, it means to people. And so I really tried hard to, to be pretty transparent when it comes to my brother. But, um, I think a lot of people don't realize that he liked to draw. I'm not saying that he was great at it, but being the younger sister, I thought, you know, he was Picasso. I was just, I thought he was the greatest artist ever. Um, but that is also probably because I can hardly draw a stick figure. Um, what else? Uh, he played, he played little league baseball and was horrible at it. And then, yeah, he was not an athlete. And then he played football his first year in high school. I'm with my buddy there. Hell yeah. <laughs> Such a bad idea. He was horrible. Just horrible. I, I'm really not even sure why he did it. Um, but yeah, so I don't know if a lot of people realize that. He did attempt the whole athletic thing and he just was not good. But I always went to the games and, you know, was attempting to cheer him on whenever possible. 
I don't know. I just, I, I guess just being, being younger sister and, you know, the environment that we grew up in, we were, um, we were really close, especially when we were very young. And so he could do no wrong as far as I was concerned. So anything he did, I thought, I thought was wonderful, but, um, but yeah, he was just not a good athlete. Interesting. When I asked you when your drug use started, you said about 11 and that was about when Brad started as well, which, um, is interesting. It's very young, very young to get involved with, you know, other substances, but, but yeah, he, he started very young as well. And, and for a long time, I think, especially during the eighties, you know, drug use was so much a part of partying that, um, you know, it became associated with a good time, but I never, I never thought that he was doing it to have a good time. Like I always realized that it was an escape for him. And, um, so even before I understood addiction and, you know, it it took me a while to, to really have an understanding of that. But even, even at a young age, I knew that it was, it was some, some way of, of escaping, you know, certain elements of our reality. And so, um, as heartbreaking as it was to see that progress for him, um, I, I understood why, you know, and, uh, and I think that that's part of what has given me such a passion for helping people of all walks of life, not just in the music industry, but just, you know, helping people in general who struggle with that and, and who are in recovery, because I have so much respect for people who have overcome that, you know, and even having you on to share your story and all the people that we have on to share their stories, it's not because we want to revel in the sort of details, but it's because it's such an example of humanity. You know, it's what we all experience is what we all go through in different ways. But those, those feelings are the same. Those, those yearnings are the same. Those frustrations and heartbreaks and all those things are universal. And, um, you know, he experienced them and everybody who has, has gone through, um, similar type experiences knows that feeling and, and can relate to that. And so thank you for being so, so open and honest and genuine with your story. Um, and even with the, the difficult parts, you know, it's just, it, it speaks so much to so many people. And, and I think that that's one of the, the greatest things about these 12 step programs that, that it gets people focusing on improving themselves, gives them a direction, gives them a community and connection, gives them a purpose, um, a, a, a way of looking at your fellow man. Um, and how you can help. There's just so many great aspects of those programs. And, and I know, you know, it's not a one size fits all, not everything works for everybody, but, but I have seen so much great fruit from those programs that it's, there's, there's aspects of it that can help just about anybody. And I wish that Brad had been able to stick with, stick with it long enough to go through that. Now, did, um, he ever, did he ever like dip his toe into the recovery stream? He, I believe he went, he tried four times in different programs, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but never, never stayed very long. He always, you know, had somebody he could call that would come pick him up and, and rescue him and, um, even tried detoxing at home. And that was, that was very difficult, but it just, it was always too easy for him to leave. He never, uh, you know, one time he, he was wanting his guitar. Like there were all these, not to say that that if he'd had you know more of a musical program that it would have worked, but I think it would have just been one more 
um, arrow in his quiver, one more thing that could have potentially helped. And, um, well, and so. tell them like, yo, you're home now, you know, you don't, everything that you're running from is going to catch up with you, you know, and, and yeah, it's really powerful for me to hear that. Well, and I think, you know, and we, your dad spoke about it a little bit with us, Kelly, in our very first episode. For anyone listening, you could find that in the archives. Um, but he said, you know, that's one of the downsides uh, about being a musician and being popular. And, you know, um, that Brad always had a dime in his pocket. So all he had to yeah. do was make one phone call and somebody was willing to come and pick him up and, you know, have a case of beer ready for forum or whatever it was. And, um, you know, we talk about it. A lot. I've, I've brought it up a lot. It's unfortunate. Brad was in his twenties. He didn't have an opportunity to get that. He was a boy. I didn't know my asshole from my elbows when I was in my twenties. I can assure you. Um, but I think a lot of musicians and, and people who are artistic think that they have to get into the drugs to make them more artistic, to, to make them more creative. It helps get the creative juices flowing. And I think that that's been, um, a narrative that's been pushed for a long time. However, if you go back in the archives of this podcast, and you listen to all of the different musicians that we've had on, whether they've just been local hometown musicians or multi-platinum recording artists, they've all said the same thing. When they finally got sober and got off it, oh my God, my shows were so much better. I right. wrote songs so much easier. It was so, it's one of those, those things that I think, you know, Bradley's house that I know once Bradley's house is up and open will, will be a big help with because, um, I think a lot of these musicians think like, yeah, man, this is going to make me more creative. Uh, and then when they finally are able to kick it and get that clarity, they realize how much better it actually is without it. Yeah. Wow. I'm really glad to hear that. I think that's one of the, the most pervasive lies that I was ever a subscriber of, you know, coming up. And I mean, here's the thing. Even if I did write the greatest music in the world when I was high, I'd pawn all my shit the next day so I couldn't play it for anybody. I didn't, you know what I mean? Like everything, right. the pawn shop one spoke to me heavy, uh, you know, for sure. But mm. yeah, I mean, that's it though. Sure. I might have some errant emotions that sound good when I sing and play, but you know, what I don't have when I'm using is the follow-through. And I, I craft, like, all the songs myself. Every single sound on my record, I made that. And then I shot the video myself, too. And it's like, I can't be that kind of, you know, creator when um, I have a master like heroin. It doesn't give me any company leave to go to my creative endeavors, you know. And uh, it's the worst job I've ever had, that's for sure. Where do you want Bradley's house to be in a year from now, Kelly? Well, open for starters, <laughs> open and, and full. I want it open and full. That's what I, and I want to, I want this us to be talking about, uh, the next house that we're going to open. That's what I really want. Um, yeah. So I just, I want to, I want to start seeing lives changed and we've been very fortunate even, you know, up until now people reach out all the time asking for help and, um, Tyson Sullivan on our board is so great connecting them with resources that fit their particular circumstances. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm super grateful for that, that, you know, people's lives are being impacted. Um, but I think just the emotional connection that, that I have and that so many people that support us 
have for Bradley's house, for getting that place open, for, you know, a place that's got his name on it in his honor, in his memory. Um, it's really powerful for me and for a lot of people. And of course, um, for my dad, who's our chairman of the board, um, I just, I really want to, I really want to see that come to fruition and, and have it not just happen, but, but grow and expand and, and get so much bigger than we could have ever imagined. Sounds good. I, uh, I know a thing or two. Let's see if we can't get that thing open this year. Absolutely. Well, I'm not, I'm not positive. This isn't Steven Seagal on the other <laughs> end. Of, uh, like that's that I'm like, that's, the, that's the vibe that I get from you. Like, I'm just letting you know, because we're all voices here because I'm camera shy. So right. it's just, we're all just, we're all just sharing voices and you've got like this East coast kind of cool laid back. How you doing kind of thing rolling. And I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm digging it. That's all I'm saying. Super badass. Well, I'm really excited to meet you when you come out here in February for our show on the third. And thank you so much for reaching out um, and for having ideas of how you can help and things that you can do. Um, I'm super excited to move forward with that. And thank you again for coming on the show, for being so open and honest and, yeah. and sharing your story. Listen, it's, um, it all it all led here, you know, and I'm uh, incredibly flattered uh, to, to do this. And I mean, this is what it is. Uh, you know, to anybody that happens to hear this podcast that's stuck on something and they don't think they can get off of it, like, I need you to know that we all pass through that place. And, you know, the pain that you're in right now, it's a requisite part of growth. You got to know that it will work for you. You just have to give yourself a shot. What I can promise you is that as long as there's people like Kelly in the world, they will always rise up to meet you in the middle of the field. But you have to take the first step. You have to go there and tell the rest of the world that you're in pain and we will be there to help you. Please don't think that you're trapped and please don't ever think that you need to do drugs to make music that matters. That is not part of this. And, um, uh, I'm a testament to that. And so I'm, I can't thank all you guys enough for this. And, uh, yeah, my life is, is, is amazing because of people like you, Kelly. I mean that. And, uh, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. So if people want to check out your music, Again, it's Gray Smith, Gray with an E, uh -huh. G R E Y, Gray Smith. They can find you on yep. Spotify. I know that. I follow you yep. on Spotify. The good old Apple as well. And then, uh, my Instagram is at official Gray Smith. And, uh, yeah. And then glasshouserecovery.com is, uh, that's home. Yeah, absolutely. You can find us on any of those things. And, uh, my OnlyFans, um, you know, if you can find that, good luck. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> But uh, it's it's terrible to subscribe to it. Um, but yeah, that's uh that's enough out of me for sure. Um, and yeah, until next time, guys. Jared, thanks so much. This is awesome. I, I feel like I'm part of something really uh, driven, and um, I I just can't wait to see where this goes for sure. Thank you, man. Yeah. You know, Kelly, some of my favorite podcasts that we record, and as much as everyone knows, I'm a huge Sublime fan, and I appreciate every guest that we've had, but some of my favorites are the stories of hearing how people were in a spot where they just didn't think they were going to be, and then boom, they blow up. And Steve certainly had that story right there. I, I love a good comeback story. Absolutely. It's very inspiring. And really, I think it, it just kind of, you know, reminds us all that, that everybody deals with crap, everybody deals with their shit. And it's really how we respond to it that makes a huge difference. And I think Steve's a great example of that. Yeah, to know that there's a way to, to just 
stay the path and, and mm. keep grinding and be able to get into a position that you never thought you'd be able to be into. I, I just love hearing it. So it was a, it was a great story. And, and thank you so much for introducing him to, uh, to myself and to the guests because, uh, his story was awesome. And, uh, he makes some great music too, um, which he's, he shared and Anna's going to go ahead and share some links in there. So, um, you know, a, a guy that's just got so much going on. It was, uh, it was really cool to hear from him. Absolutely. And I'm excited. We're going to get a chance to meet him face to face at the uh, Long Beach Legends and Legacies show that we're doing on February 3rd at Alex's bar. Super excited about that. We've got Ras one, we've got Jacob and, uh, my nephew and Billy Wilson that are going to be playing some sublime music. We've got Peril Bravo and Spray Allen, Eric Wilson's new band. So super stoked for that. And then of course that leads right into Cali vibes weekend. And that's going to be quite a good time. I'm so excited about this whole stretch. I mean, it's going to be busy for sure. It's going to be busy. (laughs) Um, But as a, as a sublime fan to be able to be at Alex's and guys, if you're listening to this and you're going to be in town for Cali vibes uh, as this uh, podcast is coming out, there are still a few tickets left. There's not a lot. They're super limited, Um, but you can go to alexsbar.com. But if you're a sublime fan guys under one roof in long beach, um, you know, Jacob Noel and Billy Wilson, which is uh, the first time they've ever done anything like this together. It, uh, that's just amazing. But then, you know, Miguel and Eric um, and then, you know, Ras one, of course, this is just like a, a, this is literally a dr- it's funny because, you know, people are like, wow, this is like a sublime fans like dream concert. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It, it, that's kind of how this all came together. So um, you're, you're right about that. So you guys don't miss this. And of course, all the proceeds go directly to the Noel Family Foundation in the efforts to get Bradley's house up and open. And that's the reason why we're doing this podcast. So make sure you guys check out the link tree that Anna's going to post uh, in the description of the show. Or of course, you can visit the NoelFamilyFoundation.org. Uh, some new merch up, right, Kelly? Yes. In fact, we just released some new pins last weekend in honor of the first anniversary of the house that Bradley built deluxe edition. So those are going quick. Um, we do have a few left of each of the designs, but yeah, some really, really cool stuff. And, uh, and we'll be debuting a new shirt at Cali vibes. So we're excited about that. Yes. Yeah, stop by the booth at Cali vibes. Look for the Noel family foundation tent. Stop by, uh, pick up a t-shirt, um, hat. There's going to be all sorts of cool stuff out there. I am, uh, I'm so excited. I- I'm really excited because as we're recording this, I'm looking out the window at like 19 inches of snow right now. So, um, <laughs> I am, uh, I'm, wow. I'm ready for, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready for California for sure. Yeah, so, so super excited. So make sure you guys, uh, again, alexsbar.com. Make sure you're following the Noel Family Foundation on all forms of social media. That's how you guys will find out first about all these cool new podcasts that are debuting, new merch that's coming out, um, you know, awesome shows like um, the Long Beach Legends, Legends and Legacies, which I'm just uh, over the moon about. I can't wait for. So um, now, Kelly, every single week, we like to have a song. This is, we like to talk, we talk a little music here sometimes. So we always like to let everyone go out with a song. Uh, what's everyone going to hear today? Today, we're going to get to listen to one of Gray Smith's covers of the Counting Crows, Round Here. 
Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Jared Orr. She's Kelly Noel. We are out of time. You don't have to go home, but it's time to leave Bradley's house. Step out the front door like a ghost into a fog When no one notices the contrast of white on white And in between the moon and you Angels get a better view of the crumbling difference between wrong and right Now I walk in the air between the rain Through myself and back again where I don't know Maria said she's dying Through the door I hear her crying while I don't know Around here We always stand up straight Around here Something radiates Maria came from Nashville With a suitcase in her hand Said she'd like to meet a boy Who looks like Elvis And she walked along the edge Where the ocean meets the land Like she's walking on a wire In a circus she parks her car outside of my house and takes her clothes off Says she's close to understanding Jesus And she knows she's more than just a little misunderstood She has trouble acting normal And she's nervous around here We're carving out our name Around here, we all look the same. Yeah, around here, we talk just like lions, but we sacrifice like lambs. Around here, she's slipping through.
said she's thinking of jumping She said she's tired of life She must be tired of something around here Nothing around here